A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, starting with verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Peter's second letter. Chapter 2, starting with verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John the Baptist appeared in the desert, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People of the whole Judean countryside and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. 
He fed on locusts and wild honey. And this is what he proclaimed. One mightier than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop and loosen the thongs of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thankful to be in this space this morning. Um, there's something about holding space uh, and acknowledging God's presence, who God is, who we are, um, each Sunday after Sunday. There's something about the rhythm of it that sometimes we don't sense the significance of it. Sometimes we show up at church and we're kind of barely there and uh, we're just kind of going through it, you know, walking through it. And then there are times where uh, difficulty strikes, where that really rises to the surface and we realize, okay, what we're doing here, something's happening in us. And somehow, by God's invitation, something's happening in the world by our prayers. Um, today, uh, Brush Hill upstairs has the opportunity to host um, St. Luke's Cumberland Presbyterian Church as well after St. Luke's was hit by the tornado last night. So they have another congregation up there. And I, I thought that was a beautiful way of joining together um, with those who are still looking to worship, especially in a time like this. Um, I'm thinking about our friends up in Hendersonville at CIL Church up there. Many of you know Mother Deborah, who serves as a pastor on staff there, and my friend Pastor Aaron, who's the pastor there. And uh, they, because the city has said not to get out, they're not having services this morning. And so I was thinking about that and reflecting on that this morning and thinking about how those of us that are gathering, that we're holding space on their behalf as well today, that we're joining with the communion of the saints wherever we are. In fact, I have a good friend who just started a home altar um, way far south of town, and he's a deacon in our diocese, wonderful. And, uh, and he's just started, and he's just invited people in their neighborhood. And so sometimes it's just he and his family there. Sometimes there's another family that joins or a couple more families. And I just told him the other day, I'm so thankful that he is holding that space, that he's sitting there reminding and stepping into the reality of who God is and who they are in that place. And each week they bring the prayers of their neighborhood, those who are there and those who aren't, and they offer them to God. It's just such a beautiful thing. We are in the season of Advent, and it's the season that I mentioned last week begins in the dark. So we recognize our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world. And then as we gradually, week by week, light the candles, we anticipate Christ's coming, future coming, and then coming into our world in our place today. Last Sunday, we heard about the ways in which the Christian season of Advent is so different from what I call the Christmas season, in quotation marks, that we often celebrate in our world, where the Christmas season often centers on buying and preparing for the one day, the experience of the one day, Advent is a season of anticipation, of waiting for God. This season then leads us to Christmas, which is 12 days of feasting in celebration of God's presence with us. This week, our readings, that, distinct, that distinction, I think, comes clearly into focus. If we come to church during December expecting to hear, it's Christmas time, so we should hear the stories of the angels and the nativity, we are rudely awakened the next two weeks with a locust-eating Camel skin wearing John the Baptist proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist doesn't fit well on our Christmas cards. Have you ever received a Christmas card with John the Baptist on it? Probably not. But he gets center stage the next couple weeks. God gets center stage, but he's there. Um, 
he's scraggly. He's abrupt. Some might even say he's harsh. He is not meek and mild. (laughs) Did you know that traditionally in the earliest church, in the earliest times they celebrated this, Advent was a season of meditating on the last four things. So here, here were the four themes of Advent traditionally. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Those are the four themes of Advent historically. Now, in more recent years, if you've been at churches that celebrate Advent, they've changed. They're now hope, peace, joy, and love. <laughs> but you can see why that tra- transition was made. We soften these themes. But traditionally, Advent carried a bite. If we anticipate God's judgment, it means that not all is currently right with the world. We need God. Bishop Chris, our bishop this week, posted a wonderful reflection on how those themes go together. So the dark themes of the tradition and then the ways that we've kind of softened them in our, in our modern world, how they actually speak together. Now, Bishop Chris is brilliant. He's one of the most brilliant people I know. Rarely does he say anything that's straightforward. Okay, so I'm going to tell you how these themes go together, but they're meant for reflection. So if you go, I don't get that, it's okay. We just got to sit with it and marinate it in a little bit, okay? So here's how he said those, those go together. Hope and death. The phrase is, Advent is my time of waiting. Peace and judgment. Advent is my time of waiting for you, for God. Joy and heaven. Advent is my time of waiting for you to be home. Love and hell. Advent is your time, God, of waiting for me to answer the door. In our Old Testament reading, the prophet Isaiah proclaims comfort to those in exile. The reading begins with this gentle picture of someone who's been in prison and now their penalty has been paid. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Israel has served her time. The exile here is imagined as a kind of indentured servitude or even a prison sentence. In fact, we have the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament that expresses the grief of the trauma of exile. And there's this constant refrain throughout the book of Lamentations. If you think of Lamentations as like a song, and then there's this refrain in the song over and over again. The refrain in the book is, there is none to comfort her. Speaking of Israel, over and over again, the book says, there is none to comfort her. Here, the prophet says, the time for mourning is now over. Now is the time for comfort. This comfort comes from God. Verse 1 says, they are my people, which is powerful because in the book of Hosea, God had declared, you're not my people and I am not your God. So the covenant relationship at some point had been at least suspended, but now God reverses that declaration. The relationship is still true. They are still his people. And even as his people are in a foreign land, it says God has remembered Jerusalem. And then it says, now is the time for comfort. And it's also the time for preparation. There's a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert the highway for our God. So God has a highway, a highway that he will travel to Jerusalem and will bring his people with them. So they've been forgiven. They've experienced forgiveness, and that will now result in a homecoming. They're going home again. This highway, this forgiveness, this homecoming, they're all announced in our gospel reading today. Now let's talk about home for a minute. 
we all experience a universal longing for home. There's something about being home. Whenever I go back to my childhood home in Tulsa, there's always a bit of an ache, a feeling of being back where I'm supposed to be. Yet, what happens over time is as we've lived here, our home has taken on a different shape. This is now home. But both places carry this piece of home for us. There's always this kind of sense of kind of at home in wherever of those two places we are. And then as we've lived in Nashville for 10 years, Tulsa has changed. It's not the same place it was when I grew up. It's grown and shifted as we have grown and shifted. So none of us in this life experience home perfectly. But our longings for home and the time we experience pieces of it point us towards the one who is truly our home and is making home for us. Frederick Beekner writes, no matter how much the world shatters us to pieces, we carry inside of us a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home and that beckons us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word prepare, like preparing for the Lord, I often think about this responsibility that that falls on us or that falls on me to prepare for his coming. As the iconic bumper sticker says, Jesus is coming back, look busy, right? But notice, even as the command is to prepare, we're told God will prepare things himself. Every valley shall be uplifted. Every mountain shall be made low. That's not on us, that's happening. In many of our world's major cities, and even throughout history, the affluent people live on hills that overlook the common people below. It's it's been true in almost every city throughout history. Sometimes they are green hills. Wink, wink. But this is a tangible picture of what is being... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) This is a tangible picture of what is being described here, that those who stand on their proverbial high horses or atop their mountains will be brought down. I, think, I can't help but think about the classic tale that we often watch or read during this season, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And in its various form, the book and the films, remember that Grinch lives high above everyone else in Whoville. Okay? And this existence, and this is where I think Dr. Seuss is brilliant here, this existence is both elitist and sad. The Grinch is high above everyone, judging their celebrations, but he's also deeply lonely. There's something fundamentally wrong about the separation between rich and poor, between social classes and castes. Isaiah paints a picture of a world where that will be remedied. Now, of course, we think about that being remedied, and that's complicated and painful. See also Mary's song when she talks about the poor being uplifted and those in power being laid low. Many recognize the words of Isaiah 40 as they were cited by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech. The words ring true in Isaiah's context and in King's context. Those who have done well in this broken, oppressive world, in God's new world, will be made low. Those who have suffered will be lifted up. Fleming Rutledge writes, Preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus is not going to be so easy for you and me. It means laying ourselves open to God's great leveling operation. It means relinquishing our most cherished strategies and defenses. 
It means living every day in anticipation of God's work of cutting and filling. It means being ready at all times to relinquish one's own special privileges in the world on behalf of those who might be very different from oneself. Notice God's glory is not revealed here just to his people. Everyone sees it. It says all flesh will see it. The prophet says, the prophet responds to the heavenly council's uh, calling that this is comfort to the people. And the prophet says, well, these words are going to be wasted on human beings because human beings are like grass. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. And the response from the heavenly council is, it's true that human beings are like grass, that they wither and the flowers fall, but it's God's word, God's faithfulness that will last. Then notice it says God comes with power. God rules with a mighty arm but also tends his flock like a shepherd. Both strength and tenderness are attributes of God. He is more than capable, and yet he does not lead with violence, but with healing love. This is good news. Advent is not about looking backwards with sentimentality on a day long ago. There's part of that. But it's looking forward to the only one who can make things right. And he has invited us to participate in that future coming here and now. So every time we lay down our defenses and we seek to be part of righting the wrongs of the world, those places in the world become signs of his future restoration. In our gospel reading, John appears on the scene, John the Baptist, splashing water on the people of God. His message on the surface is really simple, repentance and baptism. But what does that mean? Well, for those in the first century, it often meant repenting of their false hopes, the kinds of messiahs they were anticipating would deliver them from oppression. There were all these expectations in the first century of a future messiah, what a future messiah would look like. A warrior to defeat the Romans, a king to take them back to their time as an empire, a miraculous sign from God. But from the beginning of God's kingdom breaking through, it's not about a warrior king, but it starts with a scruffy prophet. John came from the wilderness. The wilderness refers to an abandoned or uncultivated place, but that word serves as a reminder. It would speak to to hearers in the first century in a significant way, because if you remember Israel's story, after the Exodus, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. This is where they received their mission, their identity. Now, Mark doesn't tell us John's birth story, But Luke tells us that John the Baptist's birth was significant. God spoke to this guy named Zechariah, who was a priest. He was on his yearly rotation in the home of the temple, God's presence, the Holy of Holies. And God spoke to him and told him that his wife would give birth to a son even in their old age. Now, Zechariah doesn't believe God, so he struck silent. I love this image. It's it's this He's not going to cooperate. So God gives him the gift of silence so that he won't stick his own foot in his mouth and he won't rely on his own strength. All he can do is rest in what God is doing. Also, Zechariah's silence mirrors the silence of the times. God's people had not heard from God in a very long time. But in the silence, God speaks. The prophet John calls the people to prepare the way. So now think about this, his biography. 
John is the son of a priest, which is like right in the middle of society, right in the middle of the culture. Well, then why is he living in the desert? Why is he going out to the desert? Many scholars believe John may have spent time as part of a group called the Essenes, or also called the Qumran community. And we know more about this group as we discover the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, not, not we in the sense that I didn't do it. I didn't discover the Red sea, Dead Sea Scrolls, but some people did in the 40s and 50s, right? And we learn more about this community that lived in the desert. Well, the Essenes believed the larger Jewish society had gone so far astray from God's intention for his people that they were beyond redemption. For the Essenes, the only way to bring about God's kingdom was to escape, to run away and create their own utopian society in the desert. And that's what they did. They built these caves and they built these underground shelters and they created this utopian community. So they were set up in the wilderness. Well, at some point, John had left society and gone to the wilderness, but something was different. The Essenes stayed out in the wilderness. That's where they lived. But something happens in John that causes him to come back and to proclaim repentance. He emerges from the wilderness to proclaim the coming kingdom of God. Something drew him back into the world. Something told him that God has not given up on his people, but God loves the world. It's a very similar thing to our Isaiah reading. God has not given up on his people. The relationship is true. And this is, of course, the good news of the Christmas story. We don't need to retreat. God has not given up on the world. But why baptism? Where does that come from? Well, every year at Passover, the Jewish people would recount the Exodus story. When God rescued Israel from Pharaoh, bringing them through the Red Sea and across the wilderness to the Promised Land. The people knew this story. They heard it over and over again every year. So here, what John does is brilliant. He doesn't merely tell them the story. He turns the story into a drama, and he calls the hearers into the story. They are to go through the waters and experience their liberation. They are to leave behind Egypt to repent the world of sin in which they were living, the world of rebelling against the living God. It is time to turn around and to go the right way. John is saying, in order to be ready for this thing that is about to happen, you need to know at the core of who you are that you are the people who've been delivered. You were delivered through the Red Sea. God delivered you. God was faithful. Yes, he's been silent, but you are still those people. They didn't just need to remember this intellectually. This wasn't something they just needed to fondly hearken back to. They need to be reminded physically. They needed to walk it out through the waters. Now, so many of the political aspirations of the day were driven by fear. People were afraid of what might happen to them if they remained in oppression. John's message is to repent. The idea of repentance is to reorient, to point yourself in a different direction. We often hear repent today and we think about people standing on street corners. I remember going to a football game here in Nashville and there was a guy out front that had a repent sign, and then he listed like 50 things on it of what you were supposed to repent of. <laughs> One of them was like being Catholic, right? Like it was just like all this like list of different things. And, and, uh, and so we think of that. We think of repentance, and that's like, you know, what kind of sticks in our head. But if we think of repentance as this loving call, yes, dramatic call, yes, shaking call, but this calling from a loving God to reorient ourselves 
to turn away from those ways that we've gone astray to those other things, I think we get the sense of Advent. We see in the story of Israel that there would be a Messiah, but there would also be a prophet. The two always go together. God's good news of liberation also comes with revealing the places where we're not ready for those good, that good news, where our hearts are turned away. So John is saying to the people, remember who you are. Remember that you have been delivered by God and you are called to be his light to the nations. And John points to the ways in which this identity is being fulfilled in the one who is to come. In this, John is a great example of the calling of the Christian. We are those people. We are those who always are pointing away from ourselves and pointing to Jesus. After Christ's death and resurrection, Christians reinterpreted baptism in light of Jesus. Baptism is this moment of new creation. God is once again hovering over and in the midst of the waters, just as he did at creation. So as Christians, not only are we Red Sea people, we're grafted into this family who were delivered through the crossing of the Red Sea, we're the resurrection people. When we went under the water, we participated in Christ's death, and on the other side, we participated in Christ's resurrection. The command to turn the right way also has a sharp edge to it. If we were told that this morning as we were gathering, somebody like really important was going to be here this morning, right? Like, uh, I don't know, the King of England is going to be here this morning or something like that. We might kind of change what we're doing around here a little bit, right? <laughs> like we might prepare. We might get ready. Somebody is coming. We might make sure that we're prepared. Well, John says someone is coming who is greater than he. John himself is not the end game. Someone else is coming and he is there to prepare the way. Now, remember, after the crossing of the Red Sea, God was present with his people in a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. God's presence was with them. So he delivered them, but he didn't leave them alone. God's presence was with them, and they anticipated the day when one day God will be fully near with us. Not just in fire and smoke, but God will be fully present with us. So this stepping into the story, which John had initiated with baptism, he says, I baptize you with water. But there's someone who is coming who will do this with the Holy Spirit, who will immerse you in God's presence. And God is present with us today. And yet, even as God is fully present with us, Advent is the call to prepare the way for the Lord. When we lean into anticipation, there's also a sense that even as God is fully present, we're leaning into God's absence too. God's coming which means in some ways he is absent. We look at the world today and we see a world where children go hungry, where justice is not done, where nations are at war, where families are torn apart, where people get sick. And we say, God, we need you. We need forgiveness. We need our home. Our calling as Christians is to be witnesses of what is to come. We are the camel skin wearers, the locust eaters, those who don't quite sit right with the powers that be. We are the wilderness people who have been compelled. God hasn't given up. He loves the world. Some of us remember our baptism. Some of us don't. It's okay either way. I was a pretty spiritually attuned kid. I was really into spiritual things. 
I was baptized at the age of seven. We didn't have a tradition where we baptized infants, and so seven was about as early as I needed to. But I, I probably could have been baptized early because I was ready. I, <laughs> I wanted, I was ready in the sense of I was ready to give my life to God. But I was baptized that late because I was really afraid of being underwater. <laughs> I was scared of a lot of things as a kid. I was the last of my peers to learn how to roller skate, ride a bike, how to swim. For me, there was no way baptism was going to be the result of peer pressure. (laughs) There's no way I was just going to go ahead and go with it and do it. No. Um, There was no way to enter baptism casually for me. To be plunged into the waters was frightening. And as I look back on it, apprehension is actually quite appropriate in approaching baptism. Because if we really believe that our baptism is participation in Christ's death and resurrection, it changes everything. And we ought to approach it with fear and trembling, though not with terror, because God always desires our good. Mark begins his gospel with John's calling people to remember their story and to prepare them for the one who is coming, who will actually be God's presence. Jesus, God's physical presence in the world, and even after his death, resurrection, and ascension, he did not leave us alone. The Holy Spirit lives in our hearts the most personal way that God could live amongst us. And yet even today, we are often tempted towards other stories and by extension, other definitions of who we are. I want to suggest that some of the same fears that drove the different groups of Jesus' day, of Jesus' earthly ministry, towards counterfeit stories are the same fears that drive us today. Things like shame, fear of disconnection, need for control. We wrestle with fear of our own imperfections. We often believe something is wrong with us. For some in Jesus' day, this fear of something's wrong with us led them to seek to get rid of their shame through obeying the law perfectly and separating from others who they believed would be unclean and pollute them. Often that inner shame today drives us. We're so afraid of being worthless or not being unique that it leads us to deep insecurity. What is wrong with me? For some, there's a tendency to not want to rock the boat or to ever be out of sync with the changing world around them. In Jesus' day, many of the religious leaders capitulated to Rome because Rome seemed to have what they needed for success in the world. Even today, we often seek the approval of others, individuals, constituencies, ideologies, at all costs. For some, the issue was and is control. Many in Jesus' day responded to the persecution they experienced with violence, a refusal to be oppressed any longer, even if it means turning to the very thing which they hate. We today crave control because we fear that if we're not in control, we will be controlled. We believe that to be in control is to be safe. John knew that in order for the people to see Jesus for who he is, they needed to see him as the fulfillment of their story, their identity, and their longing for home. Their longing as the people of God. He is their forgiveness, their justice, their peace, and their home. In the same way, the first step in preparing for God's active presence in our lives is to remember we are his. And yeah, that involves repentance. It does. It involves a change in direction because there's so many other things that want to define us. 
How often do we allow shame and approval and control to take center stage in our lives? But the gospel of Jesus reminds us we're not defined by these things. We are those who have been redeemed, liberated, and washed. So may we hear the good news today. God is here, and we are his witnesses. Comfort has come to those who have endured pain. Your sins are forgiven. Those who have been exiled are welcomed home. Amen.